hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, along with my wonderful wife, Janet, and our producer, Stephanie. And we are streaming live from the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Studio today, as we do every Monday, 1230 to 1.30 um, p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So you can catch us here on my personal Facebook page and the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy Facebook page. And as always, you can uh, message me on Facebook if you have any questions. Um, comment on the um, posts. So if you have any questions, and you can always call in also. Our call-in number, you can call in live, 509-537-0411. Again, 509-537-0411. And you can also use that number even after hours because it does forward to my cell phone, and I will get the message and return it. So super excited for our show today. We have John Chamberlain on our show, and he is a former hospital CEO, and he is going to spill the beans today on what hospitals call charity care. Um, and not just hospitals, but a lot of big healthcare entities, um, they love to brag about how much they write off and how much they give away to charity. Well, let me just tell you, it might not appear, it might not seem, it might not be really as it appears. Uh, John is going to get into the details of, of this discussion and let us know what this charity care that, that hospitals write off really is. So, John, without further ado, I'd like you to introduce yourself and, and, and start on this subject. Well, thank you, Sean and Janet. I uh, appreciate you both having me on. Um, my background, my dad was a fifth generation physician. I chose not to take that path uh, with his advice. And today I'm glad I didn't. Um, I, I think had I chosen that path, I would have been in, in what's known as the model of direct primary care because, well, our friends at the insurance companies and private equity firms have made hospital life, uh, well, really more importantly, physician life pretty miserable. And, um, but my background is in hospital administration. Uh, I've been a hospital CEO at a couple of different facilities, primarily in the South, and also have run physician practices, uh, spent about 13 years in, in the manufacturing side of healthcare before I went back and got my master's degree. I have an undergraduate degree in biology and a master's in health administration. And um, I retired from hospital work about six years ago going on seven, uh, primarily because I was not allowed by my superiors pretty much to enable physicians to take care of patients. It was all about the money. And it's even worse today, significantly worse. So, um, uh, and again, I think, you know, if you're gonna talk about background, again, I've given you my education, my experience, 40 plus years in healthcare. And I'm still involved uh, on a volunteer basis, uh, working with uh, an organization called Free to Care. It comprises about uh, 32 different organizations. It's a coalition representing about 8 million individuals and over 70,000 physicians. So finally, uh, without compensation, <laughs> I'm able to do what I've tried to do my whole career and was very successful until about seven years ago standing up for patients, standing up for physicians, standing up for hospital staff, including pharmacists, in doing what we could to do the best job possible to deliver good patient care. Because my philosophy has always been, you take good care of patients, your physician, your medical staff, and your hospital staff, and with appropriate monitoring, everything else is gonna fall in line financially. Um, today's topic, charity care, um, which is a misnomer, um, really is, honestly, it's uncompensated care. Most hospitals, uh, and I'll just jump right in if that's okay. Please. Most hospitals, um, every hospital has to have a budget. And part of the budgeting process every year is they meet with and negotiate with all the insurance carriers that they contract with. So the, the in short, the end result of that negotiation is they know exactly what they're going to get paid up front with some minor variations by each insurance carrier they deal with for each service that that insurance carrier purchases. 
with your money on behalf of your patients. And um, so the way that works is in the PL every year, in the budget PL that goes before the hospital board, uh, you see a top line revenue number. Then you see what's called, um, which is basically uncompensated care, but they're called contractual allowances. So what that means is that we know up front every year what our top line revenue is, and that's generated from what's known as a charge master, which 99 times out of 100 is horribly inflated uh, for each hospital. And we know then the contractual allowances are the deductions that are made, again, up front for those, the difference between the top line revenue and what your contractual relationships are. That typically is what drives what this thing I mentioned is uncompensated care. And that's how hospitals, and they use a lot of wiggle room to say, oh, well, this is a community benefit. We're providing all this uncompensated care like it's their gift to the community. The reality being they know that up front. So when you talk about charity care versus uncompensated care, some hospitals predominantly not-for-profits, and we'll get into that delineation in a minute, are going to try to budget a certain amount for charity care, typically less than 5%. Now, that's kind of silly in a way. You're going to budget for it. Hopefully, in the budgeting sense, you hope you don't reach it, but you're going to put a number in there just to look good to the community. Um, The sad part about that is that usually on the back end, uh, those same hospitals that boast charity care, we do a lot of charity care, also are the same ones that go after those charity patients and send collection agencies after them, sue them, garnish wages. Um, It's it's not a pretty picture. So let's jump back a little bit and talk about there's really three types of hospitals. There's government hospitals. You could look at the VA as a group. There are for-profit hospitals such as HCA, um, Tenet, other large companies. And then there are the not-for-profit hospitals. And the reality there is that a not-for-profit hospital, if it doesn't make a profit, doesn't stay in business. So it's strictly an IRS designation, typically a 501c3, which means that they don't pay income tax. Typically, the not-for-profits don't pay any taxes. Uh, Even their sales tax is forgiven by their vendors because of their status. So no property tax, no sales tax, no income tax. Now, a lot of people may not know this, but every not-for-profit organization, specifically hospitals in this case, have to file what's known as an IRS Form 990. And that's an information form only that tells the IRS, this is how much money we made. This is how much we pay our executives. This is, and they're very creative in how they get around some of those questions. But um, anybody that's interested about if they have a not-for-profit hospital in their community can go to the irs.gov and look up their hospital. If they claim to be a not-for-profit, you can get a feel for what um, kind of revenue that hospital generates, what kind of expenses they have, particularly for executive compensation, et cetera. it's a game, uh, to be honest with you. For-profits, on one hand, uh, are typically known to charge, and I can't say this you know, for everyone, but they typically charge a higher price, but they also pay taxes. So they pay income tax, they pay property tax, they pay other taxes associated with running their operations. So there's a trade-off. Um, but I, I think the whole idea of charity care, at one point, initially, when a lot of hospitals, particularly those of religious orders, were run as charity facilities. It it was important. But now, over the last really 25 or 30 years or longer, hospitals aren't into charity care. They're into making money. And a lot of that is to support their hugely expanded C-suites. I mean, I just saw the latest CXO, which I call chief whatever officer, is now a chief diversity, inclusion, and equity officer. I thought that was HR. It is amazing, John, the number of times I see a new designation for a different chief officer in a hospital system. I mean, it's it's unreal. These are not uh, low, low compensated 
employees either. Um, everybody I know, I get occasionally attacked on Twitter being a former hospital CEO. You know, I got a big bailout, you know, and a golden parachute. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I wasn't one of those people. I really was in it because I believe in, in believed in what I was doing. But um, when you see hospital CEOs making over a million dollars a year, that C-suite probably is making combined. In the case of a million dollar CEO, the C-suite is probably pulling out another two million, depending wow. on the size. It's 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 just incredible. So when you look at expenses, um, you, you have to you have to understand. As I said, the game is it's like it's they're being so. Uh, beneficent, you know, to the community. Oh, we're doing all this uncompensated care and wow, it's really hurting our bottom. No, it's not. <laughs> you know it going in. It's it's like, and we'll get into this in a little bit and it, because it's related. So let's say you go to your, your local hospital and they say they provide so much charity care. One of the next questions that needs to be asked is, are you putting patients that are in your charity care are you going after them in collections? Are you are you suing them to, to get what you can? Uh, as, as one example, um, at a hospital I worked in in Texas, uh, I put a policy into place that said, for anybody that's unable to pay, we are doing a two-year repayment plan. And if you pay whatever you can for two years, we'll forgive any of the rest of the debt. I had people that prove their inability to pay that said, I can only pay you $5 a month. And I said, I'll take it. So for $120, I forgave, you know, it could have been a 60, 70, $80,000 bill. Now that in the back door really qualifies potentially as charity care, but it's whether it's designated up front, whether it ends up being charity care. In reality, that, that amount or those amounts would fall into uncompensated care. But the point I'm trying to make is when they say charity care, you need to dig a little deeper. Um, but, and, and I think that was, you know, a really popular policy. It made sense to the community that you can go here, get care from your doctor, get the best care that's available in the community. And if for some reason something happens to your employment or whatever, you're going to be safe after two years, provided you, you pay as agreed uh, the amount we agreed upon and you're, on time and do it for two years, 24 months, you know, we'll forgive the rest of your debt. Part of that goes off into bad debt, however you want to classify it. But the point is care doesn't have to be that expensive. Why is care that expensive? Well, there's a whole host of reasons. Um, big C-suites is one. Uh, certainly insurance, private equity firms, PBMs, which you're familiar with. Um, all these third parties, that's why care is so expensive. Uh, we've got too many hands in the, in the pot, too many cooks in the kitchen. And what we need to do to get back to reasonable cost of care is get those people out. Problem is, the federal government enables most of those intermediaries. And I would say some of them in Congress benefit from it, either from a campaign standpoint or investments or what have you. So what's the solution? Uh, I don't have it yet, but let me pause and see if you have any questions or areas you'd like me to touch on. Janet? Well, I, I, I don't really have um, questions. I just have comments. Um, it seems like you mentioned that it, it started about 20 to 30 years ago. And I, I, I feel like I agree with that because um, in the past, even with our own family or my 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 um, parents it used to be that you could actually work out with the billing and have the person that you were working with you know whether something came up as long as you communicated and you were making payments it wasn't like you were being threatened um, they weren't sending you collection letters you were having an open communication about what you were able to do and I feel like in those situations, most people were up front and were able to do something with their bill and feel comfortable that, you know, they weren't going to lose their home and house over a, a tragedy that happened. And right now, I feel like people are, you know, we're, we're at a situation where, you know, if you get a bill that's 
something that you can't afford, I mean, you might lose everything. Well, I think I think part of the problem, and honestly, if I if I look at it, and I've done a lot of, I, I lived through most of it. This whole problem started back in the well, if you want to say with Medicare Medicaid from one side, but post Medicare Medicaid, the HMO Act of 1973 is where it all really started, in my opinion. This focus on profit, less care equals more money, to my hospital, to my medical group, but. What uh, specifically to address what you just said, most hospitals, particularly on the for-profit side, they farm out all their collections and their billing to a third party. So they're completely divorced from that, except they get a report, you know, either ad hoc or monthly or whatever on, you know, cases that they are patients that they've turned over to the collection agency. So they're divorced from it. And I'll give you a personal example. My wife and I have both had recent hospital admissions within the last couple of three years and set up a payment plan, no interest with the hospital, which then turned it over to collections, right? Not not to be collected upon, but to their their third party, made them aware of what was going on. My wife is still getting notices from the collection agency, even though we're paying every month, you know, auto pay. She's still getting a notice that she's, you know, going to get, and I've called the hospital three times at least <laughs> and said, stop this. They're wasting their money, their stand, their postage, basically my money, right. put a stop to it. Well, it still hasn't stopped. It's just Janet, nuts. Janet, do you want to comment on our personal experience with oh, this? Right. Well, <laughs> we recently had um, our son broke a leg and, you know, even though he was still in our home, and still, we were still his guardian because he turned 18 the end of, of um, April. You know, they started sending him collection letters, even though payments were made on a regular basis. Can you imagine being 19, 18 years old and you're getting collection letters from a hospital? And, you know, to, to have a communication or a conversation with people, it's like, you, you, he was not responsible for that bill in the first place. Why are you sending it to him? I mean, right. to me, it's just totally on almost on the side of being over aggressive. I mean, I can't imagine running a business and then you are trying to collect from, you know, somebody else that has nothing to do with the bill. I mean, I get it. He was the patient, but we were the people who were. Um, in charge of paying for it yeah, because were we were the parents, we were the gardeners. Right. And we and we negotiated, we did exactly what we negotiated with the hospital. And of course, they said they were doing us a favor because of the negotiation that we set up because they don't normally do that. Oh, a great favor that you charged me eightfold what I could have got done at Surgery Center of Oklahoma. But sure. anyway, um, and we paid regularly, but yet, yeah, he got two or three different letters of collection and each one was a different excuse and it was a nightmare to try to fix it. I mean, you had to call four different people to get this thing fixed. And um, I think the worst thing is, is that it's a public community hospital. Um, you know, so we paid, we pay taxes from our property tax. They, I've also been on that board, um, mm -hmm. publicly elected board and exactly what you're saying john is exactly what happens they're, they're contractual write-offs they would say every month well yeah 40 percent contractual write-offs it's like i've never seen a business like that in my life there's no other industry that says well our yeah. revenue was this month was one million dollars but we wrote off four we wrote off four hundred thousand <laughs> right it's like i've never heard of that it's like so and i think too what really has to be done is like you say get the middlemen out it's got to be direct between the patient and the the doctor um, the healthcare provider that's that's the best way to fix this mess well you know one of the things that uh, i i really i think a landmark couple of landmark regulations uh, were passed one of which is still trying to be implemented uh, and meeting a lot of resistance and that is the site neutrality regulations that were put into place as of January 1 of last year, which says that you cannot pay a hospital-employed physician practice any more than you pay an independent physician practice for evaluation and management codes, that is for office visits, basically. 
So up until that time, you could have a hospital employed physician charging $400 and getting paid, let's say $400 for what an independent physician would get $95 for. Now, unfortunately, what's still in play is the procedure side or what they call the technical side. So let's say an employed hospital cardiologist gets $589 for an echo. The independent cardiologist, of which there are fewer and fewer, uh, would get paid $289. So, I mean, there's a huge disparity. And why is that? It's called a facility fee. Right. The hospital or the hospital owned, and a lot of people don't realize this, it's not just the hospital property. It's any facility that the hospital owns gets a facility fee, gets a bump from Medicare slash, because, you know, commercial insurance follows whatever Medicare does. So why do you think on earth that there's now 70% of physicians are employed? That's a big reason for it. Right, because they get make more, more money yeah. if you employ yeah. that independent doc. Does he ever see any of that three hundred dollar difference? Nope. Which is Those a real. It's it. If you think about it, that's really discrimination. Because if you work at a facility or you work for yourself, that fee should be straight across the board the same. Period. That's exactly right, and that's that piece of legislation. That part of the regulation is still in limbo. And that's the one the hospitals, the American Hospital Association and all the other questionable societies, if you will, are fighting because that's that's where the revenue, that's where the money is. That's where the it, revenue is. It's it's also one way that they're able to attract um, physicians because they can use those extra facility fees and they can f- pay a physician one and a half times what he would make, he or she would make in a private practice type um, entity. Um, right. and that's what that's what they're doing with those funds. And it's not and I don't I don't necessarily blame, you know, physicians for taking the higher dollars. Um, you can't necessarily blame them for that. But, you know, it's an unfair advantage. And I think hospitals argue that, well, we need it because, you know, we're a hospital system and we give away charity care that other places don't. So we need those kind of things. And it's just it's total crap. Yeah. And it, and here's the problem, too, John. Sorry to interrupt. No worry. But, Here's the problem too. I, as a patient, I'm not, I don't have typical insurance. I have a health sharing program and I love it. I will never go to the traditional insurance route because it makes everything expensive. When I have to go to one of those hospitals for that service, I get charged that extra facility fee, even though I don't have Medicare or any insurance to pay for it. So I'm essentially getting charged two and a half times what I should have to pay. Correct? Right. Right. And you know, the, the sad part is about and we go way back to the beginning of the conversation about ChargeMaster, where you've got where you've got hospitals that are charging at least eight times what you could get, let's say, as you said, at Surgery Center of Oklahoma. And then they say, well, you know, that's uh, ChargeMaster. Nobody pays that. And I said, uh, yeah. yeah, uninsured patients are charged that ChargeMaster fee. So don't give me that. Now, yeah. you talk about a health sharing plan, you can usually... And, and my wife was a member of one until we, until she reached Medicare age, we would go into the for-profit local for-profit hospital and say, we're a, whatever the health sharing plan was. And they immediately gave a 50% discount immediately. Now it wasn't on, you know, heart surgery, but services that we received once we identified as cash pay slash health sharing plan, we got a 50% discount off whatever service we were getting. And that's, even at 50%, it's still expensive, but still it's better than having no coverage. And I hate that word. Right. No right. way to pay um, at all. Well, here's what's interesting about that. You want to know what's really interesting about that is that um, some of the hospitals have caught on to health sharing programs mm-hmm. and they were, you know, given these, these um, big, big discounts um, for people that didn't have the insurance. So in Washington State, I'm assuming if you follow the money, um, probably the 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 state hospital lobbying group, whatever Washington State Hospital Association, they lobbied um, to to have the Senate and House the um, legislation pass a rule where if you have a health sharing program, they can't discount you. Yeah, and 
Right. And that's what happened with us. And I was, I was just livid. And I, I showed them examples in Arizona, for instance, where somebody had a cardiac procedure and they had a health sharing program and the bill was 300,000 and they wrote off all but like 50,000 of it, which, cause in reality, the bill should have been 50,000 in the first place. It shouldn't have been 300. Right. It, it just, right. it, 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 it's just crazy. I mean, you know, um, and I also think it's interesting that when you look at these, how much they write off, like on my son's bill, it was $47,000. And I did, you know, calculate some calculations with help of some friends that work inside the industry and Medicare would have reimbursed them about $11,000 if mm -hmm. all the T's were crossed and I's were dotted. But right. guess what I had to pay? I had to pay 47,000. I will say this. I argued enough where I did give a 20% discount and I thank them for that, but still way overpriced. And here's another thing, John, you talked about the payment plan that you set up and they're still sending you collection. And I talked about how that happened to us. Just imagine, John, you and I, we know the industry. Right. So we know how to deal yeah. with it. Imagine a 75-year-old lady, or if my son didn't have parents like he had, and the, he, a 19-year-old kid gets a bill, a collection bill from the hospital. I mean, it is going to scare them to death. Oh, I mean, yeah. Absolutely. And that's what they're doing. They do that constantly. 19-year-olds, 75-year-olds, 80-year-olds. And it's, it, is, it is a total racket. I tell people, and I will say it all the time, and maybe this goes without saying because most people don't want to visit a hospital, but I say stay away from a hospital anytime you can. And that includes especially elective services. I mean, I in general would not go to a hospital if it's an elective procedure. No way. Absolutely. And and again, to give you another example, as you said, my, uh, I went for a, basically had to have my gallbladder out and my bill Charge charges were seventy six thousand dollars. You know how much Medicare paid? Twelve. Uh, let me get. I, I was I was going to guess ten. <laughs> right. So they wrote 76. off. I mean, this is a personal experience. They wrote off sixty four thousand dollars, and I know the CEO of that hospital. And I called him and I said, "Are you kidding me?" He goes, "You know the game." I said, "Yeah, unfortunately, I do." But this is ridiculous. And, and here's the problem I have with that answer because I had the same thing when I debated with an administrator. I can't remember what his, what do you call them? CXOs, <laughs> <laughs> right? Is that how you call them? Yeah. CXOs? Yeah. yeah. I can't remember what kind of CXO he was, but some kind Fill of. in the blank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It doesn't matter. And he was, you know, he was gutsy enough to, well, he, he, he tried to have me take the bait kind of and say, well, um, you know, I, I, yes, things are expensive, but we're not doing anything anybody else doesn't do. And he goes, you know, the industry, Sean, you know, pharmaceuticals, they're expensive. I mean, you charge a lot for them. You know that. I said, look, don't give me this stuff. I mean, you don't have to charge $17 for a Tylenol. You, you just nope. don't, don't, don't give me this. And then I told him this, and this is what I said, kind of going back on what you said about, you know, that CEO that says, you know, the game, I do know the game and you know what? It should stop with you guys. That's what yeah. I told him. I said, yeah. why don't you, why don't you cause, cause a revolution? Why don't you start charging? Why don't you be an example and start charging what we really should? And well, that's, they, you know, they don't want to. that's really what I tried to do. My last official employment, uh, since we'd moved uh, down to coastal Alabama, I, I took a job with the largest private healthcare system in coast in South Alabama. And they wanted to open an urgent care where we where we were moving to in Gulf Shores. And I applied for the job. We had moved. My wife's mom had had serious health issues. I left a CEO job in Texas to come to the coast really to help her mom. I swung a hammer for four or five months, you know, helping rebuild homes, even at that point from Katrina. This was in 07. Okay. And um, but I ended up my last formal job with a health system I opened, staffed, and ran this urgent care. And this was an urgent care about two miles from the Gulf. And we had people coming from all over the country, 40% of them who, this was their last, pretty much their last nickel. They'd saved all year to bring their family to the, to the Gulf. And so they, you know, their kid gets hit by a stingray and they come to the urgent care. They don't have any extra money. They may not have insurance. And, I, I talked to my superiors. I said, look, here's my proposal for anybody that comes to the urgent care. It's a hundred dollars flat fee if they have no insurance because the doc's going to see them if it's, you know, a stingray bite, stingray sting. 
there's nothing involved in that except hot freshwater rinses. There's typically no antibiotics given. You don't need them. In some cases, they may do something, but I mean, it's a it's a generic 45 minute treatment. Well, that was great for about two years, and then my my superior came to me and said, "Hey, we're going to have to alter that." And I said, "How do you mean?" He goes, "Well, if they don't have insurance, it's a hundred dollars up front to be seen, but then anything we do for them while they're in the back." they're going to have to pay for before they can leave. And I said, that's great. Let's do this. You get me a EHR and we were using Epic. Get me an electronic medical record system that can give me that information before they leave. And you got a deal. The reason <laughs> I said that was there was no way. Right. If we did an x-ray, if we did, you know, an incision and drainage, whatever we did, we wouldn't have that information by the time they needed to go. So I agreed to it, but then they got even more insistent. And that's when I finally said, okay, you know, it's time. Bye. I mean, these are people that don't have a pardon the expression pot to pee in and they come down here and they spend every last nickel to take their family to the, you know, on vacation and you're going to treat them like that. No. And the system no really, the system takes advantage of that. And I think a lot of urgent cares, ERs are like, how my son was taken advantage of, um, in my opinion, because we didn't have a lot of options. Because if we would have had options, believe me, I mean, I, I I was halfway across the country when my wife called me and I found out my son was in the hospital. And of course, you know, they they took good care of him, and you know, he was stable and he never, you know, lost consciousness or anything. So, but um, you know, I was really trying to think of how I could get him to Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Yeah, you know, because I knew, I knew the hospital was going to charge us an enormous amount. And here's the thing. When I, when, when we walked out of there, John, we had no idea what the cost was going to be. None. I mean, right. Oh yeah. That's name, right. Name another industry like that, where you walk out of a store, you walk off a car lot or you, or you're buying a house where you don't know how much you're going to pay. There is no yeah. other industry like it whatsoever. And that's a great segue into what I wanted to, if we have time, I think we still please, have, please time. go ahead talk about price transparency. Yep. And there was legislation passed the first of this year that required every hospital that takes Medicare to provide in readable format for 300 procedures, 70 of which were determined by the feds. The other 230 had could be of a hospital's choosing. Typically they're going to, well, they can choose whatever they want, I guess. But what, what the legislation required was that for every insurance company you deal with, you have to pick 300 procedures, 70 of which we determine, and you have to give the negotiated rate, which you determine every year, as we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, and you have to publish that. So not only that, you have to publish the Medicare rate that you receive for that, the negotiated rate with each carrier, and then a cash price. Okay, so those those were specifically laid out. Last time I looked, 85% of hospitals are non-compliant. Why? Because there were no teeth in the in the legislation. The non-compliance fee was 300 bucks a day. I mean, that's $109,000 a year. They that's just write a check. Well, I mean, John, think about it. They could do that just by doing your gallbladder. That's half of it right there. Oh, yeah. Right? Your gallbladder charge is Absolutely. So off one the, patient. The, the legislation was great. The regulations were great, except for that non-compliance fee, which is still in, in limbo. But I, I understand that the current administration is planning on raising that to $2,000 per violation. Per, I forget the details, but it's significantly more. But I actually set in on a, I'm a life member in the, uh, the American College of Healthcare Executives. And because of that, I have access to webinars. I sat on a webinar last summer where the CFO, the chief financial officer at University of Alabama, Birmingham, was advising people on the webinar and other people that were present to just ignore the legislation, put $109,900 back into a separate account. And if they got called on it, you know, write them a check. No big deal. Now, that's bad. <laughs> that's really bad. Well, but, if they really... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, 
so, so it's just a disservice to the community. The dollars, yes, are very important. When you look at a, a hospital, and, and the majority of hospitals in the country are not for profit. Out of 5,200 hospitals, I think 3,900 are are not for profit. And these are basically like the hospital you referred to. They're in your community. They're a part of your community. They they boast that. They're proud of that. And yet they're screwing you (laughs) to the wall behind closed doors. And that's, uh, you know, there's been a lot of moves over the last several decades to have hospitals um, be relieved of their not their liability for, you know, or no liability for property taxes because they're not fulfilling their charitable mission. Yeah, I agree. And they successfully defeated that with an army of attorneys. But I think if price transparency actually comes into play, I mean, that's the way you should be able to shop for healthcare. Certainly for, you know, emergent, you know, heart attacks, not so much, but for, like you said, elective procedures, you should be able to shop for it. One clue that people ought to realize, we talk about the hospital industry only being, you know, being the only one that does things this way. The first clue you should have is what is the only industry that still uses a fax machine to communicate? <laughs> That's all of healthcare, really. And oh, yeah. I know. You know, I know. I mean- <laughs> well, it's you know, the, the healthcare industry is what I was referring to. Right, right. Everybody um, else is, you know, you're doing it right here. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, you know, the, I'm not very optimistic, honestly, John, when it comes to the federal government fixing transparency problems. Um, and if they really wanted to fix the problem, here's what they would do. If they wanted to make something with some teeth, they would say, look, if you don't comply with this rule, you don't get any Medicare dollars. Yep. That would fix it yep. immediately. Yep, that's you know, 55, 55 to 60 percent of most hospitals' revenue. Correct, correct. Now, and here's another thing, too. Speaking of, you know, I, I, I kind of a segue on, you know, you couldn't shop for a heart attack price. Although I agree with you, um, there are some procedures that, you know, like a stint or something that you could shop on. Sure, um, absolutely. It, you know, definitely. But here's one of the things, and this is what I've got good friends who are very, very smart people, but they're not in healthcare. And when they think hospital, here's the problem. And you being in charge of an urgent care and, and being a CEO of a hospital, you can um, elaborate on this. Most people think when they think of a hospital, they think, oh, my gosh, somebody had a heart attack. Somebody had a car wreck. They had to go to the hospital. So but will you will you tell us the real facts about where most of hospitals revenue comes from? It's not emergencies, correct? It's elective procedures. Right. It's total exactly. knees, total hips cardiovascular procedures, cardio, uh, cardiac casts, stent placements, all these things that are non-emergent, uh, OB. <laughs> right, right. So I know every hospital is going to be different, but in general, John, what do you think is um, non-emergent? What, what percentage of a hospital's revenue is from non-emergent elective type um, procedures um, where a, a patient could actually shop for the, for the gonna- price? Say probably sixty-five to seventy percent. Wow, I would say higher, but and I'm thinking two things: most emergency treatments in the ER are not money winners. They're not going to make money. It's the aftercare if they get admitted, uh, because you've got high high acuity staffing in the ER. You've got physicians. You've got critical care nurses. You know, ER certified people although that's changing. Um, now we're seeing an increasing number of hospital ERs that don't even have a doctor in right. the ER. That's a, topic, a, that's a topic for another podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I think one of the things I allude, we've talked about earlier about physicians being employed. Uh, one of the reasons that's happened is in 1997, um, they capped the number of residencies uh, in the United States. So we have a doctor shortage only because there's no residencies available. We're seeing an average of 8,000 medical doctors coming out of medical school that cannot get placed in residencies. Without a residency, without being board certified or board eligible, you can't get hired. You can't take insurance because insurance requires board certification or board eligibility. So you have all these highly trained physicians 
even there, even though they haven't done a residency or haven't done an internship, they know more and have had more training than the high, most highly trained nurse practitioner, uh, physician's assistant, and they can't find work. So we put, we, you know, really remove the cap on residencies. All of a sudden you have not as big a doctor shortage. And the other, the other piece of this is because of that, and because of the high level of debt that most medical students come out of medical school with, not counting their residencies, that's why they're taking these jobs that hospitals are offering. Right. It's steady income. They've got hundred, two hundred, $300,000 worth of debt that they're responsible for. I would do it in a heartbeat if I come out of residency and, you know, looking at establishing a traditional physician practice solo or going to work for a hospital that's going to give me healthcare benefits and a $200,000 a year check and two weeks of vacation and yada, yada, yada. Of course, there's the downside, but. <laughs> well, honestly, John, and I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of guy necessarily, but um, I think these government regulations like cap on residencies and like high student debt. Um, I mean, in some ways, the hospitals like that. Oh, because of course. And then they can own the physician. They, they can offer them a big fat, right, a big fat paycheck. And it's like, hey, this is your option. And, um, you know, and then guess what? They're a slave to that system. A very good uh, uh, a person I really admire has a great statement. There are no conspiracies. There are also no coincidences. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you, you look at it, and, and I've dealt with this personally with physicians that in, in Gulf Shores in the previous community I was in, I worked very hard to get direct primary care, at least one direct primary care doc established because I knew if I got one, we'd have half a dozen in the, within the next two years because that model makes sense. I love it. Um, I had one doctor that I knew he was an older guy in his fifties, called me one day and he said, Hey, I just got let go by the for-profit urgent care because I was too slow. And I said, you're exactly the kind of guy that I would like to right. help get into practice because doctors need to take time with patients. Yeah. Well, he had a, terribly tight non-compete clause. And he said, you know, he said, I think I could do it, but I just can't, I can't afford to defend myself against the non-compete. I'm going back to North Carolina. And that's the, that's a, a sad example of where we are. You got these bright experienced people, particularly those that have either been employed by hospitals who've just had it up to here. And they say, I want out. Well, you got a non-compete clause in reality. I think if it ever really got pushed, um, you can't keep somebody from putting food on their table, but they're so scared of the cloth and the attorneys and the cost to defend, et cetera, that 99% of them won't, you know, try to get that fixed. And well, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, we just have so many bright, capable, experienced primary care physicians that would absolutely thrive as would their patients in a direct primary care model. Actually, I'm a pretty good friend with a, a very knowledgeable rheumatologist. Her name is Diana Granita. Oh and yeah. I've interviewed, I've interviewed her. She's awesome. Yeah, she is. She is top notch and she's doing direct specialty care now. Yep, she is. There's, which is there's fabulous. A, yep. There's so, a move to, to go with the, Now that there's a direct primary care referral source, um, yep. You know, direct primary care doctors would love to also refer to people that believe in their model, doctors that believe in their model. So right. rheumatologists, orthopedic surgeons that are, you know, fee for service or um, or a monthly membership, depending on the situation. But they they don't take insurance. They 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 love them. They love to refer people to. We people have a, like that. a direct we have a direct pay neurologist here in Austin. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's. We, the first question that people always ask me when we talk about that is, well, what do I do if I have a heart attack? Well, you negotiate with the hospital. I would highly suggest to do what you and Janet are doing with a health sharing plan. Save yourself a ton of money. Get a direct primary care physician and a health sharing plan. And if something happens, then not only do you negotiate, your health sharing plan will negotiate on your behalf, but you have to have skin in the game. 
And that's the way it should be. You have skin Absolutely. in the game on everything else you do. <laughs> John, you are preaching to the choir, buddy. <laughs> it's just it's just phenomenal. We have so many sheep in this country, and they've been in the herd <laughs> yeah. for, a, for a long, long time. And it's unfair to be, you know, I guess to, to, to be that way, but because you and I have much more knowledge of the industry. But if we can just get that word out, it doesn't have to be this way. And we're starting to see some heroes out there. Dutch Rojas is is one guy. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I mean, there's there's some heroes out there, physician wise. Other people, the, the we just got to keep pushing. Got to keep put. Hell, I'm 71. We got to keep pushing. I'm going to keep pushing until they put me under, because people in this country deserve a lot more than they've been getting in a whole host of areas. Um, and it's because they've been so conditioned to just be quiet, go along. You know, the 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 really weird part is that everybody says, oh, well, my employer offers this great health plan. I said, no, if it wasn't for you, you wouldn't have it. What do you mean? I mean, they're paying 80%. No, you are, because that 80% of what is coming, they're paying for your health plan could be coming to you in the way of pay. Well, well what would I do then? Well, go find a direct primary care doc and a health sharing plan. Let right. let you decide. Well, and here's what I and I write about it in my book, um, Sickened: How the Government Ruined Healthcare and How to Fix It. And being a guest on our show, John, I'll send you a um, a free copy. Um, and and basically, Thank here's you. what it amounts to. You're welcome. Here's what it amounts to. Um, this is what I talk about in my book. Is that I mean, I specifically do not want an employer deciding my health care for me. And I personally don't think that anybody should have an employer deciding their health care for me or for themselves. They should decide it themselves because it's very unique. Everybody's needs are different. Right. Um, and that's why that's one of the things is that we need to get we need to educate and empower patients to take care of their own health. And that also means financially they've got to have right. skin in the game. Right. And we need to also put them in power to negotiate with their employer and say, you know what, I've got, I want something better. I, I, I don't want this healthcare plan that you're giving me. I, I got some better ideas of what I can do myself. That's really what needs to happen. Right. I'll tell you what, how much are you paying total? I, I know what I'm paying for my premium. How much is the company picking up? Um, give me 70% of what your, your share is combined with my part of the premium and let me spend it. Exactly. <laughs> right. And you know, a lot of them, not a lot, but there's a number of employers that are doing just that. They're saying, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, you have people with this sheep mentality that just go, oh, hey, I got the card. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what's yeah. the card done for you lately? Exactly. Exactly. So Crazy. I'll send you a, I did a great video on uh, what if auto insurance worked like uh, health insurance. And I'll send you a copy of that video. It's, yeah. it, it, it's it's a little bit of satire and a whole lot of truth. <laughs> yes, sir. So, uh, John, as we wrap up this podcast, I want to thank you for being on, first of all. Um, as we wrap this up, what do you have a passion for? Well, besides doing what I've been doing for the last six or seven years since I retired, trying to get people to understand what's available. Um, I'm a primary caregiver for my wife, and that's my first passion. Uh, we've been married over 40 years. Uh, we have two kids and two grandkids. And uh, so we're kind of living life as it is in Austin, Texas. And given all the COVID situation, we are COVID free and um, very cautious as to, you know, what we do, but we're still living our life. And um, I play guitar and I'm passionate about that. Um, so really it's, it's, 95% family. Our daughter, as I said, lives here in, in Austin, five minutes from here. So, uh, but, but being passionate about healthcare as I've been my whole career keeps me going too. And, you know, it's, you've got to put stakes down to see progress, but we are making progress slowly, but surely. Uh, we have a number of direct primary care doctors here in Austin. Uh, one of them that I'm most familiar with is opening a second location. So that's, those kind of things are very encouraging. Awesome. That sure is. That's we true. See so, progress. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the future of medicine, honestly. I really do. Um, so thank you for being a part of it. Um, I, my wife and I are going to be in Austin in a couple of weeks. Maybe we can uh, maybe we can come say hi to you. Fantastic. Let's do yeah. that. Just yeah, let me know your 
Let me know your schedule and we'll arrange to grab a bite or a cup of joe or a beer or yeah. what have you. Absolutely. Okay, so John, if anybody has any questions from today's podcast, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, you can reach me, um, uh, my cell number, which I'll be glad to give out, 228-369-0045. Text first is preferable uh, if you have a question. My email address is, uh, actually one thing I haven't talked about very much, I've also been involved in a startup called Citizen Health. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to give that email address. It's john, J-O-H-N, at citizenhealth.io. Uh, we are in the in the throes right now of going to a, a DAO. Are you familiar with DAOs? I am not. Go ahead and educate a decent, us. A decentralized autonomous organization. It's kind of an outgrowth of the LLC, the, the IO, um, if you will. And it's revolved around crypto. And, you know, we haven't even discussed using cryptocurrency and smart contracts to pay for healthcare, but that's something that, that I'm, I'm dabbling in because I'm old, but my partners in citizen health are much younger. And <laughs> my expertise lies in, in the healthcare side. Theirs lies in all these nouveau things, but it's interesting. And could you repeat that number again about how to get a hold of you? Yeah. 228-369-0045. Again, texting first, please. Okay. Sounds good. And uh, well, that about winds up our podcast for today. Thanks so much for being on, John. You have definitely achieved our goal of educating and empowering consumers to take charge of their health. Uh, and Thursday, we're going to kind of piggyback off this topic. So speaking of direct primary care and employers, we have a pretty unique um Guess on where we haven't done it before, where we have an HR guy from an employer who has used DPC and um, we have a DPC doctor at the same time. And we're going to, on our podcast Thursday, we're going to talk about how employers can save lots of money by using a DPC doctor. And we're going to have real world examples. So you'll probably want to tune in for that one, John. Uh, It's at 8 to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Um, this Thursday, and it's got Dr. Shane Purcell Purcell on. I know, and I know Matt, Shane. Yeah, and Matt Orth is going to be on. He's a HR. Right. He's been HR for a couple big companies, and I'm super excited to have him on. So stay tuned for that. You've been listening to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you for tuning in. 